0: stuff podcasts
1: Hello and welcome to The Long Read. Adam Dudding here filling in for Michael Wright who's phoned in sick. This is part 2 of a double episode of The Long Read and the double episode is an audio version of a seven-chapter story by Eugene Bingham called See No Evil. So if you've arrived here without hearing the first part, stop right now, go listen to episode one, which covers the first four chapters of the story. If you've already heard that episode, you'll know that See No Evil is a deep dive into events that happened in the years leading up to the March 2019 terror attacks at two Christchurch mosques. So now, starting at chapter five, here's Eugene Bingham reading his story, See No Evil.
0: Chapter 5, That Day A summer's evening in Christchurch's Hagley Park can be absolutely enchanting. The fragrance of flowers basking in the sun's golden glow, the scrunch of gravel as people walk and run on the paths, and the sounds of children playing. On January 8, 2019, there was another sound. The whirr of a drone. But no one really took much notice as the man who'd launched it from his spot in the park fiddled with the controls on a remote and manoeuvred it across the road, over the traffic on Deans Ave. The man aimed it towards the al Noor Mosque, flying over its grounds and buildings. He watched through the drone's camera as he hovered it near the mosque's entries and exits and an alleyway beside the property. After a flight of five minutes, the drone returned to the man in Hagley Park. He calmly packed it away, hopped in the car, and drove towards the Linwood Islamic Centre. All the footage he filmed was recorded, so we could closely review it later at home in Dunedin. And before he left Christchurch, he wrote an email to himself with extra notes. It was a summer's evening, just before 6pm. Plenty of people were in the park. One person did later recall seeing the drone itself, watching as it flew over the mosque, though they didn't see the man or his car. It was another five months before they came forward and told the police what they'd observed. In the meantime, chaos had ensued at the Al Noor Mosque and the Linwood Islamic Centre. That man in the park with the drone? He'd returned weeks later, parked his car in the alleyway and walked towards the front door he'd filmed on his reconnaissance mission that summer's evening. He was filming his actions again, though this time he was live-streaming it to Facebook, broadcasting the moments he slaughtered innocent worshippers gathered for Friday prayers. Afterwards, he drove to Linwood Islamic Centre and opened fire there too. On March 15, 2019, the terrorist attack carried out by the man left 51 people dead and a stack of burning questions, some of which remain unanswered. Among them, how was it that no one noticed as he meticulously planned his violent spree? And was he really a lone wolf? In the aftermath of the attacks, during the police investigation and the court case, albeit truncated because of the terrorist's guilty plea, meaning there was no High Court trial. And the release of the Royal Commission of Inquiries report. There was plenty we learned of his background, movements and the extensive preparations he made. We learned his racist tendencies began to take shape in his early years, long before he moved from Australia to New Zealand, specifically to carry out his attacks. We learned he mostly kept to himself from the time he moved to Dunedin in August 2017, intent on a bloody manifestation of his perverse ideology. And yet, when you look back, there were signs, let's be honest. There was the drone reconnaissance. Seriously? A man stands across from a mosque and flies a drone over the top and no one thinks to themselves, that's odd, I should phone the police, or at least tell the mosque's leaders. There was his behaviour at Dunedin's Bruce Rifle Club during his 26 visits there. The way he shot while standing up, going through a large amount of ammunition, firing at extremely fast rates, and changing magazines quickly. The way he quizzed a fellow member of the club about his military background so much that it made the member feel uncomfortable. And the way he remarked to fellow shooters about his access to large-capacity magazines. There was the time he accidentally shot himself ending up in Dunedin Hospital's emergency department with gunshot injuries to his eye and thigh, an incident he explained as being the result of mistakenly discharging a weapon while cleaning it. On an earlier trip to the hospital, a doctor noticed he had the hallmarks of steroid overuse. There was his online activity, his membership of far-right Facebook groups in Australia, his purchases of far-right books and memorabilia, his searches on YouTube for inspiration and education on how to effectively carry out his attacks. There was his extensive travel, international trips to more than 50 countries, sometimes visiting sites of historic conflict between Christians and Muslims, or cities in Europe with a large population of immigrants, entering and exiting Australia and, later, New Zealand, but never being questioned about his travel history. And there were, of course, his gun purchases. The man... A person with right-wing extremist views, obtaining a firearms license, even though the character witness checks were a joke, and then amassing lethal weapons. If this sounds familiar, it's because that's exactly what intelligence reports on the extreme right and about our vulnerability to terrorists obtaining firearms had warned about years earlier, remember? Yeah, they told us so. Hearing all that, it's easy to think, hell, there should have been alarm bells ringing, right? Before you do, it's important to consider a couple of things. That old saying about how it's easy to see things in hindsight, twenty-twenty vision and all that, it's true. And remember that all those things listed above happened in isolation, spread out over years. Most of his travel, for instance, occurred between 2014 and 2017. And to be fair to authorities in New Zealand, they didn't even have access to his full flight history. But here's something else to consider. What if the terrorist hadn't been a polite and white Australian just going about his business? What if he'd been brown? What if he'd been Muslim? At any of those points, the reconnaissance of his target, when he was practicing military-style tactics at the gun range, when he accidentally shot himself, when he went online and made extreme comments, when he visited odd places, when he started stockpiling assault rifles, if he was brown or Muslim, Would someone have raised the alarm? Or even an eyebrow? It's not just me wondering about that. Andrew Little, the minister responsible for the Security Intelligence Service, says he's wondered that too. And he's come to a conclusion. He told Stuff, Look, if he was a person with brown skin who came from a foreign country, I suspect it is more likely than not that somebody would have been more suspicious of him and therefore more likely to have reported him to the authorities. I don't think you can rule that out. I think in reality, we still have racism in this country. Racism in Aotearoa. It's the thing we shy away from in polite company, the thing many people like to pretend doesn't really exist, the thing we cloak in other terms like unconscious bias, or we modify it by saying things like institutional racism so that it doesn't sound like we're accusing particular people of being racist the way that people are treated because of their religion. How we might be outraged about the discrimination or harassment of women who dare to venture outside in a hijab, but it keeps happening. How we might be shocked that the social media platforms we keep on using stand by as hatred and bile are directed towards Muslims and other communities who don't fit the colonial norm, but never seem to really do anything about it. Aliyah Danzaisen and Anjum Rahman of the Islamic Women's Council of New Zealand The pair we met in part one, and the years before the attacks, they were doing something about it, and others were too. We've already heard how they were meeting with senior civil servants from agencies like the Department of Internal Affairs and the Ministry of Social Development. Throughout that time, they were also having meetings with the SIS, including the head, Rebecca Kitteridge. There was a private meeting with her in October 2016 and she also attended the Islamic Women's Council annual conference in 2018. But that wasn't it. There were other meetings where the SIS would contact the women and ask to catch up. In May 2018, a female officer rang Rahman, saying she'd like to catch up and that she could come to the Waikato. Rahman was going to be in Wellington the next day, so instead they caught up there. Another time, in November the same female officer contacted Dan Zaisen, saying she happened to be in the Waikato. Did she have any time to catch up? Dan Zaisen did, and the officer asked if there were any issues. It had happened with another council member. The officer contacts her out of the blue, can she catch up? But it all seemed a bit pointless. In that case, the council member told the officer she was too busy. But it was more than that. The way she put it in an email to fellow council members at the time was, I can't keep taking time off from my work for a meeting that is unnecessary. I had nothing new to share and felt there was no listening ears to what we think. Rahman says during her meeting with the officer, no notes were taken. All the stuff we told her was a waste of time for us. Dan Zyssen agrees. It felt to me like the November meeting was, Have you got any work for us? I said, yeah, right-wing extremists. Rebecca Kitteridge, in a statement to Stuff says, I took my interactions with the Islamic Women's Council very seriously, and we met on a number of occasions. During those interactions, the women that I met with passed on a range of concerns regarding racism and abuse that women in the Muslim community were experiencing. She points out that from May 2018, white identity violent extremism was being treated as an emerging threat and was being looked at. This is dealt with by the Royal Commission which noted that in 2018 the SIS began what was called a baselining project to understand the threat posed by the extreme right. The Commission found, at that time the New Zealand Security Intelligence Service had only a limited understanding of right-wing extremism in New Zealand and work on this was not complete when the terrorist attack occurred. The project had generated 10 leads, but these had not progressed to active priority investigations by March 2019. Consider this. The SIS keeps a watch list of those priority investigations. Immediately before the Christchurch attacks, there were 25 counter-terrorism investigations involving 32 people on the watch list. All of them. Every single one of them were under investigation because of their suspected links with Islamic extremism. It's not as if the threats from the far-right or white supremacists didn't exist. How can we say that? Well, because just months after the Christchurch attacks, that watch list now included four investigations involving 16 people suspected of being right-wing extremists. And by January 2020, there were 14 investigations involving 16 people with suspected right-wing extremist links. These people, these threats, did not come out of nowhere. So why weren't they on the list before the attacks? The agencies weren't properly looking, and you can't see what you're not looking for. And we can say that because from 2010 to 2019, the organisations that provide the government with intelligence assessments, the National Assessments Bureau and the Combined Threat Assessment Group, concluded that the risk of terrorism in the country came largely from Islamist extremists. The SIS and the police agreed. Well, insofar as the police assessments are concerned, some clarification is required. From 2015, the police weren't producing strategic intelligence on the far right. As the Royal Commission of Inquiry into the Christchurch attacks notes, Police were aware of new far right groupings, but they had not assessed the group systematically or produced a national intelligence assessment of the contemporary far right environment. It's not as if they were totally asleep to the idea that the Muslim community could be a target. A police national security update in 2018 remarked that Ramadan, for instance, was a time when there was heightened risk to the community. What did police do about that? Steps were underway to produce an assessment of right-wing extremism, and there was a meeting between the police and the SIS. But it was slow going and bogged down at headquarters level. Nothing was passed on to frontline officers. Look, at the risk of unnecessarily repeating ourselves, let's be clear. There was no warning about the Christchurch terrorist. No specific tip-off that he was intent on doing what he did. But is it right to call him a lone wolf or lone actor, as many have? Unequivocally, the answer is no. Dan Zysen says the terms lone wolf or lone actor are used by security agencies to describe the actions of an individual on the day of an attack. But that does not mean that he did not have support and preparation, whether advice, financial or training, she says. At a security hui in 2021, Kitteridge herself described it this way. The specific way we use lone actor is to differentiate an attack that was planned as a group. Of course, there will be connections to ideologies that will have been communicated and assimilated by a person, and that involves, of course, engaging with other people. In fact, there was a paper that went to cabinet ministers in 2015, in which officials sought to clarify the terminology. So-called lone wolves do not act in isolation, said the briefing there were usually strong links to ideologies, validation, encouragement and instructions. In that context, of course, the briefing was referring to Islamic fundamentalists. The Christchurch attacker was the only person to stand at the mosques with a gun that day. But he was not alone. It's just that, in the lead-up, no one paid enough attention to those he was standing amongst, or the hatred they were fermenting and proliferating. Well not no one.
1: There was a lot of things
0: like that where you'd think, what the
1: f-? From Stuff, a new 12-part documentary podcast.
0: He was into sex every day.
1: The Commune. Sex, drugs, and a guru called Bert. There are crimes, but this isn't a it. It's a why done it. Good God, adults agreed to this? The Commune. Coming soon to your favourite podcast platform and to stuff.co.nz. You've already been welcome to Center Point. Chapter 6.
0: Change is coming. To get money out of the government, even for its own agencies, let alone community organisations, can be a rigmarole. There's an entire entity called the Treasury which is committed to keeping the public sector in line fiscally. Treasury, by the way, sits right across the road from the beehive. So, yeah, it's pretty hard to get anything past it. Remember the hoops the Islamic Women's Council had to jump through to try to get about $250,000 of government funding to help the Muslim community? Even after positive noises from senior civil servants in January 2018, 15 months later, there were still hoops to be jumped through if they wanted to get the money to launch the projects they believed would make a material difference. There was a business case to be written, albeit with the help of an official from the Ministry of Social Development who specialises in writing business cases. But every step they took, there seemed to be another one. Eventually, it got too much. Anjum Brahman says, we were just burnt out. We couldn't write the business case and we kind of just gave up. To them, money to help their community was always just out of reach. And it wasn't just Rahman and her colleague Aliyah Danzaisen who were experiencing this. For years, inside the government, people had been pushing for more money for the Office of Ethnic Communities, OEC, an agency which sat inside the Department of Internal Affairs and had responsibility for marginalised populations. The OEC was widely recognised as being a mess, It was repeatedly criticised for being underperforming. One review noted that its strategy was poor and it wasn't doing its job properly. Another said it wasn't effectively engaging with the community or other public sector agencies. There were restructures in 2014 and 2016, yet problems persisted. Remember that meeting between the Muslim community and heads of government agencies in March 2017? The one where leaders from the community had their chance to put their case for how the government could help mend the problems they saw. The one where the OEC didn't even have a representative there. Turns out, there was supposed to be two OEC officials there. Its acting director, but he resigned on the morning of the meeting and so didn't go. And another official who didn't front either, after an internal discussion about who best to send. One source says, They should have been front and centre. It was absolute bullshit. The failure to front at the 2017 meeting was seen as OEC's nadir. And yet, if OEC was a mess, why couldn't it be sorted? Well, it wasn't through lack of trying on the part of some senior officials. There were those two restructures. And then there's the question of money. When asked why the failings of OEC over a number of years hadn't been resolved before the Christchurch terror attacks, the Department of Internal Affairs, which oversaw OEC, pointedly referred stuff to a line in the Royal Commission of Inquiry report, which said, Successive budget bids over a number of years were turned down by the government of the day. In other words, we tried, but the politicians wouldn't give us the money. And it's not like they didn't have support from some heavy hitters. Judith Collins, no less, the formidable former national leader, put through a budget bid when she was Minister for Ethnic Communities in 2017, seeking $23 million, including money to boost the OEC. It went forward as part of the budget process, but it didn't make it across the line. If Collins couldn't squeeze money out of her cabinet colleagues, it's no wonder the Islamic Women's Council struggled. As much as there were consultations and meetings and talk of social cohesion and making the Muslim community feel safe, ethnic communities just weren't a high enough priority. Until, that is? Yeah, until March 15, 2019. Remember how Dan Zysen received that text when she was walking across the tarmac the day after the attacks? The text in which a very senior official told her OEC was going to immediately get some money. The text, which landed like a sucker punch for the woman who'd been pleading for help for so many years. We asked Department of Internal Affairs if we could interview the official who sent the text, but the request was declined. We asked about the contents of the text, about the decision to approve funding so quickly. The department spokesperson replied that the official, quote, does not recall the details of the conversations she had in the days following the Christchurch terror attacks as it was three years ago, end quote. In any event, spokesperson goes on to say, the funding was cabinet's decision to make and to announce. The official might not remember, but Dan Zeisson and Rahman do. They remember how they hadn't been able to get $250,000 to support the Muslim community, and yet, immediately after the attack, money started flowing. Initially, it was shuffled around within the Department of Internal Affairs to get things moving. And then, just weeks later, in April, cabinets signed off an extra $1.8 million for OEC. As Rahman put it, suddenly they found more than $1 million to put into ethnic communities overnight. Suddenly the money is there after we're all dead. The cabinet paper from April that signed off on the extra money reveals that the attack had exposed OEC's inadequacies. It was severely lacking in staff. Its resources were stretched. And it didn't have the money to help fund worthy community projects. The fund available to OEC for this purpose, the Ethnic Communities Development Fund, hadn't been increased for more than five years, despite increasing requests from the community. In addition to the $1.8 million in extra money signed off in April 2019, The Community Development Fund was boosted again in December 2019 to $4.2 million, and in May 2019, Cabinet approved an extra $9.4 million to hire more staff. Ultimately, OEC was replaced by an entire new ministry. The Ministry for Ethnic Communities was established in July 2021, taking it out of the umbrella of internal affairs. The money, so scarce so seemingly out of reach, was abundant. The changes, so desperately needed, were enacted. This wasn't the only change from the top. There were gun law changes. Less than a week after the attacks, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern drew international praise for swiftly moving to ban semi-automatic weapons a weakness that had been identified in those intelligence reports years earlier. There were moves to finally have a proper go at a social cohesion programme, the likes of which had been first talked about by government ministers about 15 years earlier. Ardern herself proposed a big work programme to Cabinet in September 2019. Interestingly though, as the Royal Commission of Inquiry notes, there was no consultation with ethnic communities prior to the decision by Cabinet. There was that long overdue focus from intelligence agencies and police on the far right. Together with that, there was an increase in funding for the country's spies. For starters, an extra $50 million announced just two months after the Christchurch attacks and new counter-terrorism legislation. There were changes to the list of outlawed terrorist organisations and individuals, a list which has included groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda for years. The Christchurch terrorist was added to the list. But when it comes to organisations, guess what? Rahman points out that since 2018, organisations more identifiable to Islam have been added, but they put zero right-wing organisations on the list. Not even outfits like the Proud Boys, banned in Canada, or the Base, banned in Australia. And not Action Zealandia, a white supremacist neo-Nazi group based in New Zealand. Dan Zysen says there's a reluctance from agencies and governments to swallow the reality. She recalls a presentation at a meeting with officials which showed the vast majority of extremist posts online were from right-wing nationalists and white supremacists, and yet, she says, the focus remains on Islamic extremism. She challenged the room of mostly white, non-Muslim people. I said, hold up. You've been talking about my community for so long and calling us a suspect community. Now you are the suspect community. They were thrown. They didn't want to see that the extremists came out of their community, but they were okay saying Muslim extremists came from my community. Stuff asked Andrew Little, the minister in charge of the intelligence services, about the failure to include groups like Proud Boys on the list of outlawed terror groups. He says it's a decision for the agencies, but... Quote, in the end, it's not just about ideology, even completely outlandish ideology. It's about a threat of mobilization to violence. Close quotes. Groups that were on the list were terror groups that have a track record of terrorist action, violence with a view to creating fear in a population to a particular end. However, he said, he could understand how it would look to people in the Muslim community. Within 10 days of the Christchurch attacks, the government announced there would be a Royal Commission of Inquiry to uncover what happened and how. It's supposed to be all-seeing and a mechanism to give the public confidence that there has been accountability and transparency. Unlike other Royal Commissions, though, this one was held in private. Why? Because the terms of reference required the Commission to maintain the confidentiality of information that could be harmful to the public interest if it was released, including information about the operational practices of public sector agencies. Arrangements were made for government employees and contractors to contact the Commission confidentially, and there were non-publication orders put in place covering large chunks of evidence. The Commission set up a Muslim Community Reference Group, which met nine times the Commission talked about the importance of engaging with the community. Dan Zaisen and Rahman were in the reference group, supposedly at the heart of the engagement. And yet they feel like there were large parts of what happened behind the Commission's closed doors that remained secret when they shouldn't. Dan Zaisen says they asked about someone having access to the classified material to see what was being said. We weren't allowed. No, you won't be able to get security clearance. It takes months and months. So, what? We don't have a single Muslim in the whole of New Zealand who has the security clearance to be able to see all this? Rahman points out too that the commission was delayed and delayed and delayed. Originally its report was supposed to be tabled in December 2019, but the deadline was extended several times until December 2020. Plenty of time to get clearance. Also, as Rahman says, both she and Dan Zison have been vetted and have security clearance to be on other reference groups. The Commission itself, in its report, let it be known that it wasn't happy about some of the attitudes to secrecy from some of the agencies, noting, Our impression from the large quantities of information we have handled and our dealings with public sector agencies is that there is a lack of thoughtfulness about when information needs to be highly classified, and a marked tendency to overclassify information. There's something else that happened in connection with the Royal Commission that has left Dan Zeisson and Rahman wondering if anything has changed, if they are still talking and talking and talking to officials who solemnly nod their heads but, ultimately, ignore what the women have to say. It concerns the release of the report. The Commission completed the report on 26 November 2020 and handed it over to the government. Senior politicians and officials then had to decide how best to make it public which eventually they did on December 8, 2020. Officials from the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet were in contact with the Islamic Women's Council, and they had questions. They wanted advice about the release of the report, says Dan Zayson. There was lots to consider, the public interest, but also, importantly, the sensitivities of the victims and their families and the wider Muslim community. Rahman says, We said, this is how you should do it then suddenly every piece of advice we gave went out the window. Dan Zaisen agrees. They did the exact opposite. Stuff asked the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet about the distribution of the report, and in a written response it said, the department sought advice from a wide range of community representatives, including the Islamic Women's Council of New Zealand, and this advice helped determine engagement with communities. That's not how Rahman and Dan Zaisen see it. For example, they say, when it came to handing the report over to the families, their advice was, give the families time to consider the report, give them time to digest it, give them space. Dan Zyson says, we said, don't get in their faces, give them time to process it, and give them a lawyer, because it's going to be difficult to understand it, and none of that happened. The families were given an advanced copy of the 800-page report on the afternoon of Saturday, December 5. The next morning, Ardern and other cabinet ministers met with the families at a marae and told them they could ask questions. Dan says, How many people can read an 800-page document overnight, especially when English is a second language for many of them? They had no legal expertise and no time to process it, whereas the government had two weeks Plus, they had lawyered up in April 2019 with the best lawyers. There was an emphasis on putting on the right spin, the women believe. Rahman says, They did it in a way that allowed them to influence the interpretation of the report. They were in their faces right away. It leaves you wondering, after all that happened, has anything really been learned?
1: It's Adam Dudding here, Stuff's podcast director. You'll have gotten used to the voice of this guy. Got it Yeah, him. Me, Michael Wright. Each week, I sift through all the amazing feature articles and stories that are being produced by Stuff's reporters around the country to bring you the long read. What you're hearing is a kind of distillation of the very best of Stuff's journalism, which takes a bunch of time and a bunch of money. So... If you want to help Stuff make podcasts and other long-form journalism like this, and also write the stories that go into the long read in the first place, we'd love your support. Through the Stuff supporter program, you can
0: choose to contribute any amount, and you can do it once, monthly or annually.
1: Go to stuff.co.nz forward slash support. Chapter 7. Threats old and new.
0: Not long after taking her shoes off at the door, exchanging greetings, and sitting down, Anjum Rahman jumps to a point she really wants to make. She says, One of the places I'd like to start is that in relation to advocating around extremist threats, we're actually in the same position at the moment that we were back in 2017. It's late summer 2022 almost three years on from the Christchurch terror attacks, and we've come to meet Rahman and her then colleague on the Islamic Women's Council, Aliyah Zeisson. Yet, Rahman and Zeisson feel like, in many ways, they're back to square one when it comes to being taken seriously about the danger to the community. The two women spent years fearing an attack, raising the alarm about the rise of racism and the threat it posed to their community not that you'll hear many admissions from government officials confirming this to be the case. Whenever you ask about the women's concerns and warnings, it's almost like you can hear people shifting in their seats or subtly pointing the finger to other parts of the bureaucracy. We'll come back to this. For now, we're back in 2022, with Rahman once again feeling like she's having to jump up and down, wave her arms above her head and say, hey, this stuff is dangerous and it's happening here. Prior to 2019, Her warnings were about white supremacists and the extreme right. Those concerns haven't gone away, but there are new threats. In particular, she says, there's insightful, inflammatory and really hateful material coming from the far-right Hindutva nationalist movement. Rahman says, it's extreme hate. It's dehumanising material, trying to dehumanise our community. Later, Rahman shares with Saf. Social media posts containing abuse directed at Muslims. She's right. It's dehumanizing and awful. Similar material has been cited in a report from Mass University researcher Mohan Dutta, who has studied discrimination against minority groups in India and in the Indian diaspora. Rahman, a Muslim who was born in India but moved to New Zealand as a child, says she is saddened the extremism is being seen here, where the Hindu and Muslim religions have traditionally enjoyed good relations. But what she's seeing, she says, is not an over there problem. It's happening here, and it needs to be taken seriously. Just as we were warning about white supremacist hate before the Christchurch mosque attacks, we know this is a significant threat that needs to be addressed. We need to know they are going to be taken seriously. Asked if it was watching Hindutva violent extremism in New Zealand, the Security Intelligence Service released a combined threat assessment group report which said that, while threatening language had been noted online, no physical violence had been detected. The assessment concluded tensions would, quote, likely manifest in New Zealand as isolated incidents of intercommunal violence between individuals rather than acts of terrorism, end quote. The SIS told Stuff, Our role is to investigate violent extremism regardless of ideology, and specifically to identify individuals who have both the capability and the intent to carry out an attack or support those that do. And yet, despite those apparent assurances that the agencies are watching, thanks to their experiences from 2014 to 2018, Rahman and Dan Zeisson have lost faith. Is it any wonder? During the reporting of this series, a pattern emerged when talking to people about the concerns raised by the women prior to the attacks. Actually, there were three categories. In the first category are those who deny the women ever said anything to them about the threat of the extreme right, but point to other agencies. Take, for instance, Peter Hughes, the Public Service Commissioner, whose office co-hosted the March 2017 All-of-Government meeting and met with Dan Zeisson and Rahman himself in January 2018. In response to a question about whether the threat of extremism was raised with him, he says in a written statement, Never. At no point in the meetings I attended was the issue raised. It is possible these issues were raised with other agencies, but certainly not with me or the Commission. There's a clarification required here. Hughes didn't personally attend the March 2017 meeting, though two of his staff did, including one of his deputies. Speaking notes from the Islamic Women's Council presentation for their 10th slide, which featured a screen grab from a Facebook group called War Against Islam NZ, say, coordinated activity, re-hate, alt-right, what are they doing about it? In the second category of responses to questions about what the women were saying regarding threats are those who say, nope, never heard a peep, or at least nothing approaching the seriousness of what they say now. Sometimes, when stuff asks about it, people are genuinely surprised, and perhaps for good reason. It's not like that's all the women talked about in those hundreds of engagements with officials and agencies and politicians over the years. There were plenty of other issues too. One source, for instance, says he could not recall the women specifically raising concerns about the far right, but he's empathetic towards them and says they certainly raised concerns about racist comments and threats, as well as the general prejudice those in the community experienced. Other times the reaction seems more antagonistic or perhaps defensive. Once, an official rang Stuff, asked to go off the record, and proceeded to pour cold water on the very idea. While there was discussion about harassment and abuse at one particular meeting the official was present for, quote, it wasn't in any way to the extent of we have a particular fear of white identity extremism, close quotes. Furthermore, the anonymous official suggested, if they really did have serious fears, There are plenty of people they could have spoken to. The problem with this suggestion is that, frankly, there is evidence of them expressing those very fears to very senior people in a number of agencies. In August 2017, for instance, Rahman writes to the acting deputy chief executive of the Department of Internal Affairs, Marilyn Little, firstly expressing frustration about engagement with the government, describing it as, quote, quite one-sided, with polite nods by government and its agencies, but no actual action or support as requested. Close quotes. Rahman then goes on to say, Given events overseas and the increase of Islamophobia Muslim women are experiencing here in New Zealand, we have also presented our concerns regarding the rise of the alt-right in New Zealand to the March 2017 meeting and in a subsequent meeting with the then minister in charge of the SIS, Chris Finlayson. Given many Muslim women are clearly identifiable by dress and are already a target for abuse, we believe this is an area of immediate priority as well. In addition, stuff has seen evidence of instances where members of the Islamic Women's Council reported incidents to the police and the SIS, including the placing of an anti-Muslim leaflet in one of their letterboxes and a complaint about abuse directed towards Muslims from one person who also threatened to burn a Quran in front of a mosque, coincidentally on March 15, 2019, but in Hamilton, not Christchurch. There were at least four meetings with the SIS, including two with the head, Rebecca Kitteridge. Why was the SIS having these meetings if it was just a couple of women complaining generally about racism in Aotearoa? We'll come back to what the SIS did and didn't do. First though, the third category. This covers Finlayson and his successor, Andrew Little. Their position is kind of an amalgam of the other two categories. Basically, yes, we were told things, but we don't think they were terror-level serious. Nevertheless, we passed it on. In the case of Finlayson, he met with Rahman and Zanzaysen twice. Once in Hamilton, as we've previously mentioned the meeting we discussed in Chapter 2, where he says he remembers one of the women talking about being harassed in the supermarket, and a second time in March 2017 in Auckland. There's something slightly unusual about this meeting. Finlayson didn't have anyone with him, no officials at all, and he didn't take any notes. Ministers are almost always accompanied by private secretaries or advisors, but in this case, there was no one. Finlayson says that was because of the nature of the meeting, He says, It wasn't a formal meeting. It was part of my desire to keep in touch with these people. He recalls the women raising a number of issues, including racist harassment, although he does not specifically remember them using the term alt-right, which, he says, only became popular after the violence in Charlottesville in the United States in August 2017. It was not something that was part of common parlance. I always refer to them as the KKK brigade or white trash extremism, I knew exactly who they were talking about. While he doesn't believe they passed on what he would call any specific threats or incidents that were at the level of terrorism, he says he wasn't in any way dismissive of the women and passed on their concerns to the SIS. As to what the SIS did with the information, Finneson has two points to make. One, that he believes it's nonsense to say the agencies were oblivious to the threat of right-wing extremism. The issues of the day primarily were Islamic terrorism. That's the reality of the matter. One can't sugarcoat the issue. But to say that there was a complete black spot on this other stuff is just wrong. His second point is it wasn't up to him to decide what attention should be paid to white supremacists. Ministers should not be dictating to the SIS on operational matters. Quote, There's a question about were white supremacists really cranks at the time and not deserving of too much focus, or were they a nasty underbelly of New Zealand that needed to be kept an eye on? They are operational matters, because I could not sit in my office and say, I really do think you should start spying on X, end quote. After Labour came to power, Andrew Little met with the women in January 2018 in his Wellington office. Officials were present, by the way. He confirms that, yes, they did raise with him their concerns about the alt-right. Little says, they did, and they said, this is an issue we've raised with other parts of the government too before we came to government in late 2017. But, he says, we didn't talk about it in terms of terrorism. The way it was put to me was seen as this rising tide of commentary, particularly in social media, and they were concerned about it. It wasn't presented to me as indicative of a terrorist threat. The discussion we had didn't talk about it in terms of terrorism. We talked about it in terms of climate. Nonetheless, at his next scheduled meeting with SIS officials, Little passed on what the women had told him. So, We've established that both Little and Finlayson say they passed on details of their conversations with the Islamic Women's Council, though both men characterised the discussions differently to how the women do. What happened next? Ultimately, we know from the Royal Commission of Inquiry that the intelligence community simply didn't pay enough attention to the extreme right prior to the attacks. The SIS had started a review, looking into the threat from that space, but it was far from complete by March 15, 2019. We asked Little if the Muslim community should feel let down. Quote, In terms of the white identity extremist threat, it is true that the agencies really only started getting on to that in 2018. I can understand that the community would feel that it should have been a higher priority before that. I can understand why they would feel let down that something had not been done earlier. <music> We repeatedly tried to interview the Director General of Security, Rebecca Kitteridge, but she declined. Kitteridge, a former lawyer, moved into the public sector in 1997 and has previously worked for Crown Law, Foreign Affairs, and the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet. She was appointed as head of the SIS in 2014 for an initial five year period, reappointed for three more years in 2019, and began a further two year term on April 30, 2022. In a document recommending her reappointment, the Public Service Commission listed among her achievements her immediate acknowledgement of the need for a Royal Commission and moving quickly to set up an internal review that made the service ask hard questions of itself. Kitteridge did release a statement to Stuff, saying the SIS views the Royal Commission report as thorough, independent and authoritative. She says, while the Royal Commission found no failures which could have led to the individual's planning and preparation being detected, it did identify many lessons to be learned across a range of agencies and significant areas needing change across the national security system. The NZSIS was already undergoing a significant transformation in how it worked before the March 15 terrorist attacks, which was acknowledged by the Royal Commission. The Commission made no recommendations relating directly to the SIS but Kitteridge says the report supports the agency's efforts to improve itself in several areas, including identifying previously unknown threats, streamlining the system by which leads are prioritised, recruiting a more diverse workforce, and enhancing training to help our people understand unconscious bias and how to remove bias from their decision-making. When the Commission's report was released, Kitteridge appeared at a press conference with Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and Police Commissioner Andrew Costa, where she answered questions, though she would not take questions afterwards and has never done a one-on-one interview about the attacks or the fallout. The press conference was interesting for the fact that Kitteridge apologised numerous times to the Muslim community, such as, quote, "...NZSIS should have done better at explaining our role to the Muslim community and listening to their concerns." I know that a number of people have found this upsetting, and to them, I apologise. There are also a couple of times she appears to struggle to answer some questions. For instance, there's this is one particular moment, probably the closest you'll get to seeing Kitteridge publicly under pressure over the agency's role. Not so much with regards to the attacks themselves, but in interactions between the SIS and the Muslim community, the kinds of interactions Dan Zeisson and Rahman were having with the SIS boss and other officers. During the press conference, Kitteridge is asked if she's the right person to lead the SIS when she had, quote, historically framed terrorism as a Muslim issue, end quote, based on a 2016 speech she gave. Kitteridge pauses and looks up to the right. Beside her, Ardern remains stony-faced, but her eyes move sideways towards Kitteridge. On her other side, Costa fixes his stare firmly on the ground in front of him. This is awkward. I actually, Kitteridge starts saying, then stops and begins her sentence again. You can tell that her mind is whirring. My own view is that I have not done that in the way you say. It has been a very challenging situation, but my aim throughout has been to have a really constructive relationship with the Muslim community, which is really important to me. And I've engaged with them from the beginning of my term um, until now in ways that I hope will continue to strengthen that relationship. There's a follow-up question, asking if she no longer believes the comments she made in 2016 framing terrorism as a Muslim issue. No, I mean, I completely accept that point you're making about the speech I gave then, says Kitteridge. Just to explain, it was in a particular context, and uh, no, I accept the point you're making. It's unclear exactly what she means. But there is no follow-up, as Ardern looks around the room, seeing if anyone else has any other questions. A quick side note. In relation to that 2016 speech, a spokesperson for the SIS pointed out to stuff that Kitteridge said in the speech, In talking about terrorism, I would like to make the point, which I have regularly made, although it is never reported, that terrorism is not a Muslim issue. The spokesperson goes on to say, It's a clarification we've previously made to media, as it is important that there is an accurate understanding of what Kitteridge said, particularly on an issue of such importance. The 2016 speech does indeed include that quote. Kitteridge spends some time discussing the Muslim community, mostly in the context of the abhorrence they have towards extremists who carry out acts in the name of their religion. She notes New Zealand Muslims would be the victims of a backlash if there was a terrorist event in Aotearoa. And in a paragraph about potential counter-terrorism threats, the speech mentions Islamic State, but not white identity extremism or the extreme right. Of course, there are so many questions, even three years on from the attacks. It can't be easy, and no one alleges that the SIS or other intelligence agencies missed anything specific that would have stopped the Christchurch attacks. The terrorists made very few missteps in his preparations. Well, none that made people look sideways at a white man anyway, as discussed in previous chapters. But Kidderidge was in charge throughout the period that Dan Zeisson, Rahman and others we're trying to raise the alarm about the growing threat of right wing extremism. And there's very little evidence anyone listened, properly listened, as in took action based on what they were saying until it was too late. Again, as we've said before, if you're not looking, you won't see. But what went down before the Christchurch attacks is not just about terrorism, not just about the SIS. When you look back through all the interactions from 2014 to 2018, when you read all the thousands of documents and talk to the people who were in those conversations, most importantly, Dan Zaisen and Rahman, you can't help but conclude that there's a wider problem here. The fact of the matter is that Kitteridge's agency was not the only one that spent a lot of time engaging with the community in frankly inadequate ways. It's something the Royal Commission picked up on. And it's one of the topics we asked to interview senior civil servants about for this series. They all declined. In written answers, though, Peter Hughes, whose title is now Public Service Commissioner, and whose reappointment until 2024 was announced on December 4, 2021, four days before the release of the Royal Commission's report, said he could understand how some of our Muslim community feel they have been let down. Quote, All New Zealanders deserve to be treated respectfully and fairly in their interactions with public agencies. That did not happen with some members of our Muslim community, End quote. Hughes says recommendations made by the Royal Commission to improve interactions with the community are being implemented. He says, I am confident that agencies are doing what is required of them. That's what I can do to make a difference, and I will. At the Department of Internal Affairs, Deputy Chief Executive Marilyn Little who had dealings with Dan Danzaisen and Rahman, says she accepts the Royal Commission's assessment that public sector efforts on social cohesion have been fragmented and frustrating for the community groups who have engaged with them. Little says, It was never our intention to create frustration. However, we recognise and regret that some groups did feel frustrated. Within the Department for the Prime Minister and Cabinet, another agency that met with the women, there's also acknowledgement that they didn't do good enough by them is actually a very good example of this. In January 2017, Dan Zeisson and Rahman met with a principal advisor from the Department for Prime Minister and Cabinet to discuss hate crimes and harassment and Islamophobia, among other issues. The women thought the meeting had gone well, but it turns out, from the DPMC end, the meeting may as well not even have happened. The women discovered later that they had essentially wasted their time flying to Wellington for it. Two years after the meeting, as agencies faced scrutiny over their interactions with the Muslim community prior to the attacks. DPMC asked the women for details because there were no records, not even who they had met. DPMC had learned of the meeting from Islamic Women's Council submissions and had gone to see what their own records showed. Luckily, the Islamic Women's Council had kept all its records, including the name of the principal advisor and other details of the meeting. Rahman says... That gives you an indication of how seriously they were taking us. What it's felt like the whole time is, how can we keep them engaged and look like we're doing something and have meeting after meeting after meeting without actually doing anything substantial? A source told Stuff that DPMC's handling of this meeting seemed very much at odds with the Public Records Act, which requires agencies to create and maintain full and accurate records of its affairs in accordance with normal, prudent business practice. In a written statement, Tony Lynch, DPMC's Deputy Chief Executive, says his department is committed to open and transparent engagement with the community. Quote, We have acknowledged that some meetings in the past weren't managed in a way that met our own expectations, and we've changed that. We're regularly engaging and consulting with different groups to ensure their voices are heard as the government's response continues. DPMC is also supporting Ka the Ministerial Advisory Group, on the government's response to the Royal Commission. In a letter to the government last year, Karpuya expressed ongoing frustration with the level of engagement and consultation. Andrew Little, the minister in charge of implementing the commission's recommendation, says, it was a totally justified piece of feedback. I say to colleagues too, you've got to get your departments and agencies to do better in this respect. It can't be the last minute, oh, we'll ring up the local Islamic organisation and check they're okay with it. It's got to be involvement from the outset. There have to be improvements. But I detect a much greater commitment from more heads of government departments to actually want to get it right, and I'm confident we will. Not everyone is as confident. Stuff spoke to a range of former civil servants and academics who were sceptical. Says one source... What you're looking at is a bigger issue no one can articulate or get their heads around yet. Another source says the experience of the Islamic Women's Council reveals one of the failings of the public service in Aotearoa. There was a real lack of leadership and a real lack of desire to see it through, says the source. Dr. David Brommel, a senior associate with the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies, who has worked in central and local government, traces the issues back to public sector reforms of the 1980s. While there have been changes since, he still believes the problems remain because of the single line of accountability between the chief executive and the minister they answer to. It makes for weak interagency responses to problems. Brommel says, Various governments have tried different things to address that, including the idea of having lead ministers on critical issues and clusters of agencies that are supposed to work together. But the bottom line is that the single line of accountability is still in place, and the way the budget is done doesn't easily incentivise agencies to work together and pool resources to address problems. He goes on. So it takes quite a lot of goodwill and proactive leadership on the part of public sector chief executives to break out of that, and I still don't think we're seeing it. How should it work? What should happen when citizens come to a government official trying to raise the alarm about something? Brommel says, the first thing that official needs to do is not fob it off by saying, this is not our core business, but to actually elevate it or refer it to whoever the right agency is. And then, not just pass the buck, but work with them on determining a response and who is going to do what, why, when, where and how, and who is going to pay a bit of leadership and making something happen. Importantly too, if it's ultimately decided the issues raised don't require a response, Someone needs to go back to those people and explain why they're not taking action, not just kind of fob them off. So I think it's about leadership and taking responsibility. Back in 2015, four years before the day that changed many, many lives forever, there was a Facebook page dedicated to preventing New Zealand from becoming, quote, infected with the disgusting virus of Islam that is slowly destroying many countries, including in Europe, end quote. On its pages people would comment with a range of vile and violent insults and threats. We've quoted them in the online version of the story, but frankly, I don't feel comfortable saying them out loud. Basically, it's all variations on a theme that Muslims must die. Concerned by the content, Aliyah Danzison, Assistant National Coordinator of the Islamic Women's Council, contacted Facebook, who replied, we reviewed the page you reported for harassment and found it doesn't violate our community standards. About a month later, Dan Zycin was at a Countering Violent Extremism Summit she'd been invited to in Australia. She spoke about the page and Facebook's response. One of Facebook's global vice presidents, Monica Bickett, heard Dan Zyssen and approached her to ask more. The next day, Bickett got back to Dan Zycin to tell her Facebook had reviewed the page again, removed some content but, quote, The concept of the page does not violate our standards. By the way, the page is no longer on Facebook, although it is unclear when it was taken down. Dan Zison and others had been trying to tell New Zealand government agencies about the rise of hatred towards Muslims in this country and the threat it posed. she had previously been to the police about the Facebook page. An officer told her they didn't know who was behind the page, and that, it seems, was the end of it. Except, of course it wasn't. Around the same time in 2015, a young Australian man was embarking on a worldwide tour, which would include him visiting the sites of clashes between Christian crusaders and Muslim armies. It fueled a growing resolve. Over a number of years, he would travel back and forth, never being stopped at the border for questioning, never being suspected as an extremist. Young Muslim men, meanwhile, would be stopped and questioned as they returned from routine overseas trips for business or to visit family, for instance. The young Australian man's family, already worried about his tendencies, noticed he'd become even more racist, ranting about how the Western world was coming to an end because of Muslims. By 2016, he was devouring YouTube videos and following Facebook, engaging with pages such as the far-right-leaning United Patriots Front, the True Blue Crew and the Lad Society. As he percolated in this extreme online world, he began sending donations to far-right organisations and by 2017 had formulated a plan to come to New Zealand and carry out a violent attack on Muslims. All the while, no one took any notice. Well, while it's true to say no one was looking at that particular young Australian man, Aaliyah Danzaisen, and Anjum Brahman and others were seeing exactly what was going on in the world he lived in. And they were not going to give up trying to tell someone. They met with government agencies, they met with cabinet ministers, they even met with the head of the SIS. People would nod their heads and sound concerned. That, it seemed, was the end of it. Except, of course, it wasn't. On March 15, 2019, the Australian man no one had taken any notice of, drove from Dunedin to Christchurch, parked his car in a side alley, went to the boot and loaded his weapons. guns intelligence officials had once warned were too easy for right-wing extremists to get their hands on and covered with slogans referencing the sites he'd travelled to. He turned on his camera and started live streaming to Facebook for the benefit of the legions of like-minded individuals he'd sat amongst online. He walked towards a mosque he'd once viewed through a drone camera and was greeted by an elderly man who looked upon the stranger and uttered words of peace. Hello, brother. The first shots rang out. And suddenly, everyone heard.
1: That was part two of See Evil. On the long read from Stuff written and read by Eugene Bingham and produced by Michael Wright and me, Adam Dudding. This episode was edited by Sam Scannell. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual podcast platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us.